Greetings, dear listener. This is your Corker Master, Jeremy Cobb, here to give you a friendly warning that this entire episode takes place inside the spoiler chamber. So if you want to avoid any spoiler radiation, now's your chance. Also, this episode features discussion of suicide, homophobia, and transphobia. With that out of the way, let's get into the episode. Accolades. Nominations. Oscars. Surprisingly well-timed podcast releases. All are stretched and distorted into unrecognizable infinity as they approach the singularity at the center of the black hole. We remain here as witnesses, studying the results and transmitting our findings to anyone who will listen. Coming to you live from the edge of the event horizon, this is the Quantum Reactor. A sci-fi movie review podcast starring two brave souls with stars in our eyes and quasars in our hearts. My name is Jeremy Cobb. And my name is Andrew Coons. And both our pronouns are he, him. And you are not unlovable. There is always something to love. Even in a stupid, stupid universe where we have hot dogs for fingers, we get very good with our feet. Amazing. (laughs) We are super excited to be starting today's episode within the spoiler chamber because we have a very, very special guest uh, joining us. Uh, Connie, will you introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. It's me, Connie. My pronouns are they, he, and she. And I am so excited to be zapping in today as a hologram, uh, as a member of the public relations team here with Quantum Core. Uh, Here to settle any anxieties, any feelings of fear and imminent doom and death. I'm here to work with you and help you out and make sure that the right message gets out to the public about it. Thank you so much for coming, Connie. Uh, We already did an episode on everything, everywhere, all at once, and we absolutely love the movie. We think it's an absolute masterpiece, but there were certain areas that we just didn't feel equipped to be able to discuss ourselves uh, because we don't really relate as strongly to those experiences. And we were hoping that corporate could send somebody who could give us some insights that we wouldn't have ourselves. So thank you so much for coming uh, and providing your considerable experience and knowledge to this to this issue. Absolutely. I'm more than happy to talk movie stuff uh, before the event horizon obliterates us all. Uh, Yeah, there are so many aspects of this movie, everything, everywhere, all at once, of course, that is like, it's like so many layers. Where do we even begin? I have so many notes that I'm just ready to like (laughs) spew about and go forth and and Well, I I think maybe a good place to begin would be, um, I, I would love to hear your first reaction to seeing the movie. Um, I know for myself, when I went into it, I purposely avoided, I think I may have seen like the very, very first teaser trailer. Um, And then I purposely avoided any other trailers because I was like, this movie looks bonkers. I don't want anything spoiled. Um, I love A24. I love Michelle Yao. I love like all of these people. Um, You know, how, like I want to go in unspoiled. So it was a very pure experience for me in terms of like, I, I didn't know the plot. I didn't know anything. What was your experience like and and what were what were your first thoughts as the as the credits began to roll? Yeah, so at this point I've seen the movie a few times. 
Uh, and my experience going in was very similar to you, Andrew. I was starting to see buzz around it, and based on the buzz I saw, most of it was spoiler-free, actually, so good job to the people generating the spoiler-free buzz. Um, I knew that I also wanted to go in with, like, as, as little context as possible and kind of just let the work speak for itself and have kind of, like, an uncolored, uh, like, view of the film so I could take it in on my own terms and on its own terms. Um, that was important to me. For a, for a film of this particular caliber, too. Like, I don't really care about spoilers for, like, MCU films, for instance. <laughs> um, going, <laughs> just just to be candid, just to be frank, not that they're not fun popcorn crunchers necessarily, right? But just, like, different kinds of movies, right? right. Um, my, first, my first viewing, the only thing I kind of knew was I was seeing a lot of other, like, members of the Asian diaspora TM on Twitter, you know, and, you know, my Asian friends in real life, talking about the movie being like this is really emotional and like super super personal and like I cried and it it devastated me in the best way so I was I had I had a really high bar for the movie going in I had really high expectations and I was honestly flabbergasted mm -hmm. by how the movie blew those expectations away like they took the high bar I had and they like fuck they like flipped they somersaulted over it like yeah and Simone Biles like it was yep unfathomable like for the first time in five six seven years like my favorite movies list has changed like everything everywhere all yeah. at once has like knocked out the number one movie like front like dethroned um the the crown prince which was for me get out up until this point and oh. like has taken its place it was it was yeah it was it was a truly transformative um first viewing i was just taking it in i was just taking it in not thinking about it just letting the movie talk to me and then the second time i viewed it i had a little bit more of a critical lens insofar as like i, I want to look at this work of art analyze its themes see how it's executing upon those themes and like exactly what it's trying to say about nihilism and right. queerness and you know diaspora and mothers and daughters and all that and family and love and i was blown away again because every shot had meaning um every prop every costuming element every line every like every beat mm -hmm. of the movie of every kind across all disciplines of the movie like spoke toward a central theme mm. right and it reinforced that theme or like explored it or uh offered a counterpoint to it and and showed new angles to it so mm -hmm. it is truly like in in my opinion like a masterpiece in in so many different ways yeah it it does have that feeling that hasn't been evoked for me since really like Lord of the Rings in terms of the attention to detail on every single level, mm. like you're talking about, like a fully realized world. Um, you know, you, you can imagine the directors walking around and tweaking little props here and there, like Peter Jackson would do, you know, to just get it pitch perfect. And uh, not that most movies aren't made with love and care, but there was, like you said, there was a there was a bar it raised and then somersaulted over mm -hmm. in, in all those aspects. And movies that have a reputation for being so meticulously crafted rarely have this much energy. Mm. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of directors out there. You got your David Finchers and your Paul Thomas Andersons and your Edgar Wrights and so forth who are known for being very meticulous in how they're constructing their movies. But none of well, with the arguable exception of Edgar Wright, nobody goes nearly as gonzo as this. Mm. Like 
this movie swings for the fences. It swings for the parking lot with basically every single element of the film and manages to connect, which you just you, you just never see. Like it's executed consistently at such a high level and there's so much going on. It's yeah. actually uh, awesome that you bring up Edgar Wright because Mad Max Fury Road is like my number two movie. <laughs> it's like the, it's, it's oh, everything yeah. ever all I wanted. He didn't Mad make Max. that one, but yeah, yeah. I thought he... I might be talking. No, that's about no, it. that was George, George Miller. Miller. You're yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. But that's another movie that where like yep. it goes, it goes all the balls to the wall every single moment. Which, by the yep. way, is actually an aviation term. It has nothing to do with body parts. Uh, but balls <laughs> to the wall, uh, like all over the place, and somehow succeeds. Like it just works. Has that same kind of energy. Uh, I would say though, different. I would say between that one and this one, this movie I think has a lot more texture it has a lot more stuff that you can miss like it feels like there's just more going on every second uh in contrast to mad max fury road where it's pretty straightforward a lot of the time mm-hmm. there's just a lot of themes mm-hmm. to be teased out of it this movie is so layered and textured yeah yeah uh there are so like absolutely what you said jeremy there are so many layered themes little like details like down to like the repeating motifs of the circles right like to yeah. just like every aspect of the film has like what uh, Andrew said, been like lovingly placed there for a reason, right? Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. one of the one of the other things about the film that I that jumped out to me like almost immediately upon watching it, like even my first watch, was its use of of language, specifically the towing the line between like Mandarin and English. There are like scenes that use both of these languages. There are scenes where in the same breath a character says something in mandarin and then it like rolls into english or like the other way around and that was very affirming um to witness uh, as a chinese screenwriter because i remember like back in college during like screenwriting workshops or whatnot i would write like scenes like 10 page movies or like even you know my big thesis like feature was about chinese diasporic experiences in a lot of ways so i had characters do a very similar thing like switch between chinese and english within the same scene even within the same dialogue block and a consistent piece of feedback a piece of criticism i got from overwhelmingly white and american peers and colleagues was this is confusing to me this doesn't resonate with me will there be subtitles how are you going to make this read to an american english speaking audience to a monolingual audience and like that was like instead of which was really interesting because like 50 percent of the time that would be what the feedback would be for my work instead of like actually just evaluating the work like i'm like what did you think of the tone (laughs) or like what did you think of the characters like what did you think of what i was trying to say with this piece Mm -hmm. like but they were so distracted by the the switching of language that you know it felt like a waste of time honestly about 50 percent of my my workshop time was just you know spent squabbling over this so to see everything everywhere all at once do that unapologetically Mm. you know in a way that was just like here are some subtitles so we could just get the gist of what they're saying but like not have to justify it or like um uh, compromise on it for a monolingual English-speaking audience was right. honestly very affirming and incredible to witness. Uh, and that, you know, that really struck a chord. Yeah, and even though that does continue throughout the movie, I, I do think that as a, a, a single language speaker, uh, you know, watching the opening scenes and how much it flips back and forth in those opening scenes, uh, I feel like it, it, certainly the first 30, 30, 60 seconds, I was like, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta pay attention because I need to be able to read the subtitles, listen, you know, switch and all that type of stuff. 
but it but it had me acclimated within 30 60 seconds right and like it wasn't a hard thing to to overcome from a from an accessibility like you know i didn't feel left out of the story by any stretch of the imagination and and i do think that as i've seen it a couple times now and and seen the way that it, it does go really hard at the beginning with that i think there's a reason the filmmakers did that they were like look we're gonna set the tone right away and we're not gonna comp like you know, we're gonna lean into our mostly English or our mostly Mandarin scenes later, but we're gonna we're gonna set the tone of what this family feels like right away and what it's like to to walk in, to be the girlfriend who walks in and and is hearing these different languages and doesn't speak them all, uh, and kind of put you in those shoes a little bit. I think it also felt. Uh, somewhat authentic to even my experience. My mom was born in Jamaica and then moved to the United Kingdom when she was a child, but still grew up in primarily Jamaican immigrant communities. And so when she would talk to her friends, she would switch dialects mm. to Jamaican Patois, and I would have no idea what she was saying most of the time, which was very disorienting for me as a child, but it was like, I understood that this was just, like she would pop back and forth between the two, like her accent would change. Um, uh, just from word to word sometimes. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm guessing this is probably something that happens in in language, in in households where people will speak multiple dialects or multiple languages. People will just hop back and forth because everybody knows what they're saying. Yeah, no, exactly. I literally this morning, my mom's in Paris as we record this and she like texted me being like in Chinese, like, hey, Connie, do you want, like, do you want me to get you a handbag? Which is hilarious because, <laughs> because I'm like, have you, mom, you've birthed me. You know, I do not want a freaking handbag, right? A great present for my sister. <laughs> Great present, wonderful present for my sister. <laughs> Terrible present for me. Uh, so I texted back being like, no, like I'd prefer socks or any sort of like frog related memorabilia. My mom was like, okay, weirdo. Um, but that text exchange was a mix of English and Chinese, right? She'd like say in Chinese, do you want a, and then yeah. use the English term for handbag instead of like the Chinese one. And then I'd re reply in Chinese being like, no, I don't want a handbag, thanks though, but I do want, and then I replied like frog socks in English. And like, we just go back and forth like that. Um, yeah. Which is just very, very like like Jeremy said, very realistic to how I think a lot of mm -hmm. um, multilingual and diasporic or immigrant in any kind of way mixed generation households interact with each other. And I was really happy to see that the film basically made no concessions on that point. You know, like like you said, Andrew, yeah. drop the viewer in and set up for the themes of like chaos, uh, absolute chaos, multiversity, universal hop mm. hopping action later on. Mm -hmm. It seems yeah. like that uh, combination of different cultures is also an area in which um, well, in, in moving to some of the other themes of the movie, uh, I was thinking about it, and it seems as though when in relation to uh, Evelyn and Joy and H Evelyn's reaction to Joy's queerness, it seems like the main friction there is not a personal, and you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it, I got the impression that the main friction there is not necessarily a personal problem that Evelyn has, but more of an, an, an issue that she is afraid of the culture clash with her father. Um, but it seems like even yeah. then you have a mix, like the theme of mixing cultures uh, and trying to have these things mixed together is, is present even in that aspect as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I would say... So what's interesting is acceptance of queerness and to an extent transness as well, specifically within mainland China culture. Um, there's kind of like a don't ask, don't tell social feeling around queerness. Like there are no, like being gay is not illegal, but it is also not 
legal. Like it's right. like gay marriage is not legalized, but there are also no laws criminalizing homosexuality um, in China. It's just kind of like a and that might that might be kind of how Evelyn comes across to me as like ah oh, just yeah just talk. you've got yep. your friend over, not your girlfriend, your yes. friend like you know. Don't don't do it in front of me, and like mm -hmm. you know, don't don't kiss her in front of me, and I won't say anything. Sort of sort of mentality. Yes, it's so that is kind of like my general vibe of what you know it, it, queerness is like in in China. That is quite accurate, I think, to how Evelyn, uh, the character, mm -hmm. her relationship to queerness is portrayed. What's also interesting is, um, well, obviously there are queer people in China. There are queer Chinese people, right? <laughs> and there there is like an ongoing fight for acceptance that looks very different, I think, from American fights for acceptance, though. There's a lot of inspiration for queer activists and queer folk in China f drawing upon Western and like American like uh, mm. queer folks being out and proud. There is a lot of influence in a very positive way, I would say, in terms of cultural exchange. That aside, um, there's a lot of discussion about generational trauma in this about around this film, right? The, the idea that like the grandpa disapproved mm. of Evelyn's right. romantic prospects, uh, even though it was a, a heterosexual romance. Uh, and now like Evelyn also disapproves of her daughter's romantic prospects, even though it's a queer one. And I think, uh, I think the queerness is also like an added matrix of disapproval because I would say there mm. is latent homophobia and uh, maybe active <laughs> homophobia, especially <laughs> now so too, uh, homophobia and queerphobia um, within Chinese communities for lack of a better term. Uh, and it's interesting because from, I see myself as the joy in the situation, right? Like the kind of like second gen, 1.5 gen Chinese American kid uh, who has to uh, basically do a tightrope balance between the impossible projects of both assimilating into whiteness uh, and American society and pleasing one's Asian parents, right? So, like, when you throw queerness into the mix, it lights everything up like a fucking Molotov, Molotov cocktail. Uh, and it's also further complicated by Evelyn's queerness in the, in the um, hot dog finger reality, right? Yep. So, like, that, I, I love that. I love that, um, that side reality. Um, and this idea of like, yeah, uh, like joy, joy not only as like the child of a Chinese immigrant, but also as a multiversal immigrant herself. Like as she's moving from reality to reality, wow. trapped between infinite worlds belonging to none, but despite everything, despite trauma, despite tragedy, despite rejection, despite pain, despite suffering, despite her mental illness, despite her mom's homophobia, um, despite the ultimate meaningless of not, uh, meaninglessness of life, uh, she's still seeking love. She's still seeking right. specifically a connection with her mother who has routinely rejected her and refused to see her like on her terms, right? Has refused to acknowledge her partner as hers, uh, just sees, it as a sees them as a friend, right? Uh, so that really hit home for me because I, I just see myself enjoy in, in, in so much of this, right? Like a, a mother who refuses to acknowledge my partner as a partner and just sort of like sees them as a friend even now, you know, like that hurts a lot yeah. uh, and is really real. And like, I think a reason why this film resonates, especially with so many child of immigrants, specifically Chinese ones, specifically Asian ones, is because even though it's very absurd and very fantastic, it is also deeply, deeply real um, mm. and hits hits home pretty hard. Yeah, and and also the misogyny of of Evelyn's father at in every I think mm -hmm. in every version of the reality he was always disappointed <laughs> that he has a daughter, like every single yeah. one. He and the doctor 
are disappointed that he has a daughter. Uh, and I think that, like, that's a very interesting element as well, that he can't, that you have a, the theme of parents disapproving of their children or, like, begrudgingly yes. tolerating their children for who they are. And that uh, disapproval being steeped in specifically bigotry and specifically, like, uh, like hegemonic I ideals, right? Like, Evelyn was dis disapproved of because she's a woman. Uh, which is very real, especially in older generations in China, like this idea. You know, one child policy creating a boom in orphaned girls in China, mm. uh, like specifically because, mm. you know, they didn't want a girl and they could only have one kid, so they kick her to the curb until they got a son. You know, like that happened. Um, yeah. And it's very real. And now, like, the, the next generation of now the bigotry is, is queerphobia, right? Now the bigotry is like lesbophobia, is, is homophobia, right? Mm. Um, and I really liked how the movie tackled uh, those themes of oppression through a very personal lens, because I think that's like, that's how the movie really excelled in its discussion of bigotry. Uh, because some of the movies that I've seen that try to discuss like racism, homophobia, transphobia, et cetera, like sometimes where they fall flat for me is it feels a little soapbox preachy sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, like where they talk about it as a systemic issue without showing kind of like the personal yeah. consequence of it. Well, this was the opposite. They never, I mean, there were some things, but like, like you know, Joy wants her mom to introduce her, you know, girlfriend to, to her grandfather and stuff, but like, there's so little in the movie that is about, like they never call out mental illness. They don't really call mm -hmm. out homophobia. They don't call mm -hmm. out racism. You just see it happening. And we talked a little bit about this in our in our review, just like even the way that like, you know, white characters will interact with them. Um, I think about the guy in the laundromat who's like, you know, you people are supposed to be good with numbers or something like that with that line. Um, and like, you know, it's this very casual racist thing. But then in the next scene, they're dancing together and they're they're experiencing life together. And it's, I think the thing that's so interesting about the way it tackles all these issues is it doesn't vilify anyone individually. And it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it, 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 it creates space for there to be empathy for people who make mistakes. And, you know, Evelyn, I think is a great example of, Evelyn's got a lot of flaws. Um, she also goes on a journey and grows and learns and you're never once not on her side, at least from the standpoint of like, hey, I see who, uh, I see what you just did there and I don't approve of that, but I hope you grow and learn from it versus like, okay, you're the villain now. Yes, you actually touched upon something that really resonated with me too. Like there's something so deeply hopeful about the message of the movie that even your worst life your worst version of yourself mm -hmm. is worth living, contains some degree of beauty, yes. some degree of worth, right? So Evelyn in the, the laundromat, Evelyn, the movie literally says this is the worst version of yourself yeah. across infinite realities. This is like right. the worst, like, damn, that's a huge L, right? Um, which is like the movie flat out describes that as a multiversal truth. And yet this is the main character in yeah. a lot of ways. This is the Evelyn who is redeemed, right. who finds worth and value mm -hmm. in her own little laundromat life, right? Who is able to see her daughter for who she is and save the multiverse by the end, right? This is an Evelyn who grows, right? Even the worst version of yourself yeah. can be better and can find like something worth living for. And that was such a deeply beautiful message for me, especially as someone who has historically struggled with um, suicidal ideation and mental health and depression myself, this idea of like, what's the mm -hmm. point of living? Everything sucks. There's no guarantee it's gonna get better. And I feel like th this movie's response is kind of like, I mean, you're right. <laughs> there is no guarantee it's gonna get better, but like, you know, we can try to still yeah. live anyway and just like be here and be present and maybe, you know, being with people yeah. we love and who love us will help through the pain. Um, 
And that's mm. kind of, I think, what I needed to hear, especially back in high school and college, you know, when my mental health was true, truly in the dumps. Um, and I feel like if this movie had come out around that time, it would have it would have been like huge for me. Right. It would have been like absolutely yeah. massive for me as a yeah. queer youngin. This movie hits a lot of the same points that the show Community hit. I think for me, even stylistically, you can see a lot of the DNA, I feel like, of community in this, right down to the multiversal aspects, the examination of different people of different cultures and communities coming together, uh, discussions of generational issues, racism, parental issues. Uh, at times, community even dealt with elements of queerness, uh, certainly racial issues at times. I don't think that it ever dealt with all of those things quite as uh, deftly or in depth. I think it focused more on the the television and uh, media aspect, but like you can even see that in this with the number of like either explicit or in implied references to various pieces of media. And what's interesting is in both cases, I would argue both shows uh, or both works. W the the thesis statement would be uh, your life probably sucks. There's probably a lot of elements to your life that are miserable, and you are there's a lot of reasons to be unhappy. And it's questionable whether any of it matters because you, you, uh, people are constantly stuck in the same kinds of cycles. And yet. Uh, love still matters and it's ultimately like people the people around you matter and the love of other people uh, can bring redemption and growth and you can always grow as a person it's really like it, the more I think about it the more I'm like oh dang yeah like if I had seen this uh, back when because Community when that came out became my favorite thing it wasn't like my favorite show it was my favorite thing for a long time uh, and I wonder if this had come out like when I was uh, like 2010 2011 uh, if I would have had a similar somewhat of a similar experience with it because it, it has a lot mm. of so those same messages that's really interesting I, I I've only seen like the first few episodes of the first season of community so I like certainly mm -hmm. haven't like watched enough of it to like really get to those themes I think um, but I think that's that's a really interesting comparison between those these two works and a, a really meaningful thread that you're pulling from both of them and just in terms of like so what I really love about this film is it essentially says yes, nothing matters, which is true. Like it, nothing matters. Like it, we're a tiny, we're people living on a tiny blue orb in like the desolate waste of space. Like nothing freaking matters. But you know, there's kind of like two different responses you can take to it. One is you can be you can be a dick, you know, or you can like be violent and 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 give up, right? Or or like fall into despair, whatever that looks like it means to you, yeah. or you can put googly eyes on stuff, right? And like this, yep. in the face of nothing matters, it's not the fact that nothing matters that matters, it's how we respond to it, mm -hmm. yes. right? So I feel very similarly to nihilism that I do to the concept of power, because I think there's a lot of, you know, sometimes when people talk about power, they talk about it like it's inherently a bad thing, like power by itself corrupts, and I'm like, no, I, no, no, I don't believe that. I believe what you do with power reveals who you are, yeah. right? And power is kind of more like a, a, a mirror or like a window into into your true self. And someone like Raymond, a uh, Wayman rather, um, what he does with nihilism is he puts googly eyes on things and he accepts and loves his daughter. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Evelyn in the face, and Joe Butabaki, uh, this broken, right, flawed kind of antagonist, kind of protagonist, like what she did initially in the face of this nihilism was, was sink into despair yeah. and like try to end the world. When all she really needed was her mother to say, I see you and I love you and I'm here for yeah. you. That's all she needed. Mm. And Waymond is maybe a top five 
character in cinema of all time for me. Um, I love everything about him, and I love I love the climax of his journey of you know the speech where he says we have to be kind. Like that's all I know how to do. That's how yes. I fight. Mm-hmm. And there's something so beautiful about because you know. It, <laughs> everything's a spectrum but there are these kind of like pillars of of culturally like women in film are this way men in film are this way you know etc and you know he's not the strong male archetype he's not like he's a in a lot of regards a weak man um who who you know has a, a lot of hard times expressing his feelings and uh you know lets himself get stepped on a little bit by people uh and but that's your perception of him you think oh well that equals weakness and what's revealed throughout the movie uh, is that that cliche is being flipped on its head and it's saying, no, he's incredibly strong. He might be the strongest person in this mm-hmm. film because he is kind and because he chooses in the face of being stepped on to choose kindness when he could very easily lash back out and become that angry person. I mean, that's that's Alpha Waymond, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like a reason why I think Alpha Waymond has to die, mm-hmm. like in the logic of the film, like because Alpha Waymond is a Waymond, is the only Waymond that has chosen violence. Um, yes. and he and he dies because of it. So like when we also so what you're touching upon Andrew, I just I just cuz I agree with you. I love Wayman. I think he's a he is up there for me as a character in yeah. cinema too. Um when we splice culture and race into this conversation about Wayman and his masculinity as well, like mm. we like there's a stereotype especially I think in American culture of specifically Asian Chinese men being effeminate and weak. Okay. You know, like not non-sexual beings mm. who are just kind of like they're as a comic relief or the nerdy guy or like yeah. they're they're very like like deep essentially like demasculinized. You're you're either that or you're the kung fu action star. And and like there there are these two yes, things. Yes, which is still and the kung fu action star is like like the, yeah. the Bruce Lees, right, and like the uh, the Jackie Chans, right, are are also there is the masculinity yeah. there, but it's a kind of like, in a lot of ways, there's there's still something mm. effeminate mm. or like mm. less threatening about those characters because they're like, oh, you're a free, you're a weird Oriental like kung fu guy, you know, like you're not necessarily like a hot, right, like a hot guy in a, in a way that I think yeah. Asian masculinity you're not the Arnold Schwarzenegger and, or the Sylvester yes. Stallone. Yes, they would exactly. never make right. they would never make Bruce Lee noises, for example. You're a monk who has sworn off relationships yes. and gone into yes. the mountains. A hundred percent. You see that actually, even in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in the little <laughs> Brad Pitt Bruce Lee fight scene, where Bruce Lee is making his traditional mm-hmm. noises that he normally would make, mm-hmm. and then uh, Brad Pitt sort of mocks him, and you like you see like good old fashioned American masculinity uh, pitted again, and it's like. That's part of why that scene has always felt really weird to me, because it's just like, eh. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it, 100%. Yes. Even, even in the strength, they're not given the opportunity to come across as as masculine yeah. as, say, white or black characters often are in American Exactly, uh, and yeah. it's kind of like an inverse, I think, of how a black masculinity is typically treated by white yeah. supremacy, which is hypersexualized. Exactly. Right, like black men specifically treated as like, uh, People who who have to be like hypersexual, who have to be like super super macho in a way that is also dehumanizing, but in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting when we also add into this discourse mm-hmm. of there's there's a push in modern Chinese socio politics, for lack of a better term, to like for men to be more macho in a very Western way, and a desire to eradicate softness mm. and femininity from men. So this idea of like, keep your hair short, you know, work out, 
be muscular, you know, be a man, you know, and and that I think comes from a very conservative, reactionary kind of right wing. Um, a push in Chinese politics uh, for, you know, this idea that like Western influence is mm. effeminizing Chinese men, mm. right? And like the, the you know, Western influence is, is queering, mm-hmm. <laughs> queering the, the Chinese man, which is like a, another interesting matrix to this. So Waymond, Waymond, I see so much of my own father in Waymond. Like there's the, the stereotype of like a tiger mom, right? In like Chinese American mm-hmm. specifically like culture. Um, and I kind of want to like talk yeah. about like the rabbit dad because my, my dad is year of the rabbit and my mom is actually year of the tiger. So she's Whoa. literally a tiger mom, right? She's literally yeah. a tiger mom. She's like one year older than my dad. Uh, and my dad has always been very soft, similar to Waymond, like very kind of reserved, like very kind of like soft spoken and kind in a lot of ways but you know i've had my issues with my father as well right like mm-hmm. kind of distant like kind of like right uh, but that's neither here nor there um but in terms of the film itself i love that the language of of violence is one that evelyn is in control of like she's a, a martial artist of course michelle yo is is like a, a skilled martial artist in her own right and for evelyn to like physically fight whereas like the yeah. language of softness is is one that Waymond wields and both are seen as like necessary in Evelyn's journey for her to get to the point of where she needs to mm-hmm. where she needs to be yeah her her fully real fully realized self is, is the mm-hmm. fighter at the end who is allowing kindness to come through she's redirecting 100%. people she's giving them you know, their heart's desires uh, and using her multiversal powers to do that. And it is, I mean, a beautiful kind of thing of like, look, you you need to have both in your life. You need to be able to um, to stand up and fight for what you believe. And you also need to, yes. um, in doing that, remember yes. compassion, remember empathy, be a human first. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it, it's not till the end that there's kind of this fully realized person who's gone on this journey. Um, as it should be, like that's that's the point of the movie. But it is so interesting that you bring up the whole Alpha Raymond Wayman thing uh, of him having to die off because he is very much represented as like, oh cool, like he's fighting with the with the with the fanny pack and like here we go, the movie's kicking off and like he is a cool character. Um, he's the Jackie Chan, but he also can't. Yeah, it's very Jackie Chan. But also, he can't mm-hmm. get Evelyn. Like the fight scenes literally look play out like Jackie Chan fight scenes in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think they were choreographed for him originally. And yep. That, but he, but it's but he can't get Evelyn all the way. Like he hits a limit, and I think that's super important to show that. Like, look, it, and again, it's not vilifying him. It's not saying, oh, you were wrong, uh, you were a bad person. But it is saying like you had a limit, and we yes. reached it, and now she's got to take it. hundred percent. And he's also the only Wayman that leaves Evelyn. When he thinks that she's not the one, he he mm. abandons her. He he leaves for her to yeah. die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think any other Waymond except for the violent Alpha Waymond would have done that. Um, and I think that's that's also something that like really spoke to me in the about the film as well. Yeah, and yeah. more jaded as well. Like even that that version of Waymond and Gong Gong, I think were the two most like ruthless ones, in part because I guess they were the ones who had seen the most destruction and suffering. Like that's what right. I got the impression. Like war had changed them, uh, and so yeah, even they those... were like PTSD and stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean either way, I think Waymond is mm-hmm. such a good role model. <laughs> Men take notes. Men take notes. Women want Waymans, <laughs> not, you know, whatever alpha male bullshit. Yeah. 
Um, I'm curious to get your take on the ending. And I, I think it's it's interesting. We've seen a couple different films come out in the last couple of years between uh, this one and Turning Red, um, which have... I, I've seen parallels drawn between them about mothers and daughters uh, in Asian-American uh, you know, families rect uh, rectifying their differences of, of reconciling. Um, and I'm just curious for... You know, from your cultural perspective, your upbringing, that we've talked about a little bit, like how did that ending, you know, resonate with you? And like, what are maybe some of the things that, that specifically resonate with you just with, with your unique experience? So much of the, all of it. First of all, all of it, which is not a very helpful answer. Um, the, next, the next thing is, so for me as a queer diasporic Chinese person, uh, I experience a deep sense of alienation no matter where I go, right? Like this, uh, on the surface level, this idea of like, I'm too Chinese for the States, I'm too queer and American for China, right? Uh, but on like a more, on a deeper, more personal level, this idea of being too queer, too trans, too weird, too unknowable, even to my own family, specific to my, specifically to my mother. Um, but this, process of finding meaning through the meaninglessness and the anchor through annihilation being love. So I've heard a lot of anecdotes of like second gen or 1.5 or third gen or whatever um, diasporic Asian folks watching this movie with their first gen mm. parents. Uh, and the it's hilarious because so many of these anecdotes is like, yeah, my mom fell asleep. <laughs> my mom fell asleep during it or like my mom didn't get it. My mom was like, that was a nice Kung Fu movie. <laughs> All right, oh, I'm going to kick yeah. that out. Right? So this idea of, like, the, the parents, the Evelyns not getting it, right? Like, um, or being, like, overly critical of the film, being like, that was a weird film. I don't understand the hot dog <laughs> finger sequence, yeah. right? Like, which, which honestly, honestly, I had expected. I had expected that to be, like, the general response. Uh, I, had, I have not seen this movie with my mom yet. I don't even think she's seen mm. it. I'm kind of scared to. <laughs> I'm a little scared to see the movie with my mom, not going to lie. Um because I feel like my mom in a lot of ways is very similar to the Evelyn at the start of the film. That is overly critical, hyper judgmental. Um, and I think that is true for a lot of, you know, maybe Asian Chinese moms and parents. And I think that comes from a place of, a place of, you know, love in their own yeah. way of a desire to see their child succeed, um, to like have the American, mm -hmm. the, you know, quote unquote American dream that they came to the States for, uh, and to have a, ostensibly a better life than the one they were able to have right before they moved here. And down to the name of the main character, Joy, I think is representative yeah. of Evelyn's hope for her that like sh she has projections upon Joy of being this happy Chinese fulfilled daughter here in the States. But Joy ironically is deeply mm. depressed and suicidal, right? As deeply see, depressed. Like, yeah. so depressed and suicidal as we see in the film. And the version of Joy that uh, Alpha Evelyn, right? Had like basically this whole thing started happening because Alpha Evelyn mm -hmm broke alpha joy because she was like you have potential let me like open your mind to the multiverse and made her a multiversal mm. wanderer a fugitive yeah. a multiversal fugitive right like she constantly living all realities at once which is a horrific hell uh for anyone to suffer through and that hell is kind of compounded by the fact that your mother did this to you even though it was unintentional even though she did it because she wanted yeah. you to reach your full potential right because she wanted you to be able to be a savior right but in, in the process of that you were broken and i think that's just speaks toward like a lot of like Asian mm. you know kids 
you know, Asian American kids being, you know, having a lot of expectations mm-hmm. foisted upon us by our parents that were not, you know, not our dreams necessarily, right? But there is also mm. still like yeah. what I think of as a um a happiness debt that I think a lot of Asian Americans feel we have to repay to our parents. Uh, right? So there's a degree of necessary suffering and necessary unhappiness we have to like go through in order to like pay back the opportunities our parents have given us right and afforded us which is why like i think a lot of asian american kids like go into careers that they don't necessarily have a lot of passion about but that are stable and what would their parents want them to do right yeah. or like give up on their art uh you know or like you know shun their own queerness and like m- you know marry straight even though that might not be what they want right um so speaking personally you know i've touched upon this a few times before in this interview but i was i still am uh, but much less like I've, I've got you know i've like got out of control now at this point but i was i was deeply deeply suicidal in high school and a little bit through college as well uh because i felt like i felt so deeply alone as like a i was coming to my queerness i had friends right but like i was like no one understands me so there's also the teenage mm-hmm. the teenage depression like compounded with like the chinese <laughs> right. and the queerness stuff yep. um and also compounded by feelings of, of particularly worthlessness in school. I was never a straight A student. I was kind of like a B, B minus student, to be quite honest, which is not what my mom wanted for me at all. Um, not living up to my mother's expectations of who I should be and what I should become. And having uh, explicitly having my queerness rejected by my mother as well. I had come out to her when I was in eighth grade and had that summarily rejected. Um, uh, which, you know, which is also why I could see myself enjoying that moment of like, right? Like, I'm not gonna acknowledge your queerness, right? And all I wanted back yeah. then, and still now, is love, right? That's all That's all I ever asked for. That's all I have ever wanted. And I think that's all that joy Jobu Tapaki has ever wanted too, was a mother's, yeah. in a lot of ways, unconditional love. But like, when we are the children of immigrants, sometimes that love feels conditional. It feels conditional based on becoming the people they want us to become. So back in high school, even after reaching out to my mother in a very vulnerable and desperate way, uh, she pulled away, right? She pulled away, she essentially like rejected, rejected that version of myself and pushed me aside. Instead of doing what I, I deeply, I deep down, but could not admit in my angry adolescent way, uh, I just wanted her to hold me and I just wanted her to love me and say, I will be here for you. Like, I am here for you no matter what, which is what Evelyn says to Joy at the end. Uh, and that's why that ending scene, I think, is so important because she wraps her in yes. her arms and she says, like, you know, that she kind of admits that this life sucks. Yeah. That this, you know, like, that, I wish that you do call. I, maybe I would have made different choices, <laughs> yeah. but. But now knowing everything, mm-hmm. I choose to be here and be with you. Mm-hmm. And that is so poignant and so important. And I, I, you know, from a different perspective as a parent, you know, you, and I have young kids, but like there are moments that you go through where you're like, even when things are going great, where you're just like, what type of opportunities did I give up by, by having kids? You know, was there another path for me? Um, you, you see your friends who don't have children going off and traveling the world and advancing their careers and all these different things. And you're, you you kind of have that whole feeling of like, ah, oh, what would the other road have been like? And then, you know, there, there's a wrestling that you have to come to with yourself of like, mm. But would I really trade it? Mm-hmm. Like, and no. I, I think if you're if you are a parent who recognizes that you love your child, then the answer is no. And I think that that's such a so like you know from a, from that perspective, that scene really meant a lot to me because I was like I've been through those dark moments where I've gone, 
like, man, what would my life have been like? And it's like, I don't know. It, maybe the grass would be greener. I don't know. But this is where it is. This is where my feet are. And this is where my heart needs to be. And mm. like, that's really important. I, I, I don't know. That's just, I love the intersection of, of different experiences here with that one scene and those different perspectives. Uh, and it meaning, so this is why I think great art is like, everybody gets a, a different meaning out of it to some No, degree. absolutely. 100% agreed. And like the whole like, you know, what you're saying is very googly eyes of you, right? Like <laughs> making meaning out of whatever life you do have, right? Instead of dwelling <laughs> right. on what could have yeah, been, yeah. right? Like what Wayman said, and you know, the yeah. classic line in another life, you know, I would doing laundry and taxes. Oh, yeah. that's like, oh, yeah. that is so romantic. And heart. it's so beautiful and heartbreaking because yeah, you're right. Like we, we don't know what the road not traveled would have yielded but what we do know is that there is a path we're walking now and we are doing the people who love us and who we love a disservice if we like are not here and present and showing up for them in the ways they need us to show up for them especially if they are our children and i think like in terms of a conversation about mental illness and like mental health issues um I think for a lot of Chinese parents with Chinese American kids, mental illness is still seen as a kind of moral deficit. Uh, I think that's a very mm. common conception of depression and under other mental health struggles in China. Like this idea that if you're depressed, you are weak. Like being depressed is a failure of character as opposed to like something that people need help with, right? That's a very, I think, traditional and like slightly older generation, but there's still that stigma um, around it in China that there there is still in the States, I would say, but much less so and or in a different way. Like people in the States are really open about talking about going to therapy. Like every one of my friends yep. I know is goes to therapy and or a lot of them are medicated too, which is great. You know, like and I'm really happy and I think that's wonderful, yep. right? Like, and it's super open. People are like, oh, you don't have a therapist? That's weird, right? Like that's almost like the weird thing, right? right. Like, <laughs> therapy seen as a normal good thing, which I agree with, like especially done well, like it is super super helpful and it saved my life in high school um, but it's it's yeah. not normalized in in China but what's interesting about that is so my mom still holds on to that stigma my dad who is the person I think that I inherited my mental illnesses from um, he goes to therapy uh, he, he sees a therapist he mm. lives in China he is on medication right he has like bipolar right and depression and he's he's open and frank about talking about his mental health health uh, struggles in a way that is quite unusual I think especially for a man wow. especially for a man of his age uh, in China, which I, you know, I've always been very grateful that my dad has been kind of like, in a lot of ways, a wayman in my life. Um, which is not to say, which is not to say that I dislike my mom or necessarily, even necessarily like resent her. I love her. I love my mom. And I've gotten to a point in my life where, where I've kind of made peace with the kind of relationship I think we're going to have for the rest of our for the rest of our lives together. And like, not in like a kind of depressed way of like, damn, she's never gonna understand me or see me. But I think my mom, I've had to sort of like, I've had to everything bagel my way, like around my relationship <laughs> with my mom in a way that, you know, is, is good for me. And honestly, good for her as well. Like, I've gotten to a point in our relationship where I can be like, I know she loves me, this is true. I know she struggles with expressing that love for me in certain specific ways. But at the end of the day, like I do have confidence that my mom will be there for me when I really need her to be there for me because she has shown up for me, you know, similarly to how right. she hasn't shown up for me, she has as well in different mm -hmm. ways. And that, you know, the, the, the mother, 
quote-unquote daughter, right? Because I'm, like, non-binary. That's I'm just I'm just tossing that out the window for now. Like, I'm never right. going to tell my mom that. And I don't... Right. And honestly, in terms of my relationship to my gender, I don't need my mom to see me as non-binary for me to know that she loves me and for mm. me to feel seen by her in the way that I know she is able to see me and that I'm fine with her seeing me. I don't need her to see me as gender fluid. She can still see me as her daughter and she can still see, like, some authentic version of myself even within that, like gendered way that I don't necessarily align with anymore right and there's like and that's my sort of concession uh that is not that is a compromise that is not mitigating any other part of myself because I can still feel like I can be my full self without her seeing me in the way that I present myself to the two of you for instance so it's complicated it's really fucking complicated Mm. and this movie really has helped me make sense of that in a way and help me process that like fraught but also loving relationship between myself and my mom and myself and my dad as well but i think what you're touching on is an element of we are all multiversal beings (laughs) like we are all incredibly multifaceted incredibly complex there are things that don't make sense uh, mm-hmm. that are absurd, that clash, that one minute you are, you know, we're all hypocrites. We're all, you know, uh, 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 you know, com- uh, competing ideas within ourselves. And it's the embracing of that that happens in this movie at, in the big, mm-hmm. you know, kind of climax of the film. It's the embracing of the chaos mm-hmm. rather than the fighting of the chaos that leads to them being able to reconcile, that leads to, because there's a, the way the final scene is written mm-hmm. or the near the final scene where they're standing out in the parking lot you have a like that to me is the most confusing from a language perspective scene because the way they're changing kind of their tenses and things and like that like wait a minute are we talking to Jobu Tabaki are we talking to Joy like which Evelyn is this like it becomes very fluid in that moment uh, which I think represents the, the the wrapping the arms around, like we are all these multitude of things. Yes. And we're going to honor that within each other. I think you're bringing up a very salient point here, Andrew, especially about that we are all multiversal. Like something that just came to my head while you were talking, which thank you for giving this to me, uh, is this idea of like, so to my mom, right? To my Evelyn, uh, she can only ever see like the, the hot dog fingers Connie, right? She sees the hot dog fingers yeah, Connie and right. she loves the hot dog fingers Connie, which is still Connie. It's still me. Like she's like that's the mm-hmm. only version of me that she knows maybe, but that's fine with me. You know, like I she doesn't need to know all like the TTRPG Connie, you know, or the frog Connie, right? <laughs> or like the dice head Connie. <laughs> like she doesn't need to know these other Connies to be able to <laughs> see and accept and love Connie. Because at the end of the day across these infinite mm. universes there is still some conception of this is mm. me in some way as messy and infinite and multitudinous and chaotic as I am it is still me and I get to decide what that means mm. and I get to decide what that looks like and the mutative nature of identity is part of what makes it chaotic and and depressing but also beautiful and meaningful uh, Connie you just highlighted something that I actually think is worth pointing out which is that this movie has a very clear concept of like a core identity even though all of these different versions of these people are basically I, I you could argue that say movie star Evelyn would have virtually nothing in common with uh with um Rakakuni Evelyn uh who might have nothing in common with <laughs> hot dog fingers Evelyn there is still some piece of all of these people that at the core is still Evelyn uh and so it also would mm. speak to the flexibility of identity 
to a degree. Uh, we don't know like what led to all these different people, but they are all st ultimately still at the core the same person. Which is also like if you get into like the it makes it reminds me of the ship of Theseus. Like at what point does it stop becoming Evelyn? It was always Evelyn. No matter what, it's always yeah. Evelyn. You could change every other piece, but there's always some piece in there, <laughs> spiritually maybe, that is constantly Evelyn across all of these different versions. And so all of these different mm -hmm. permutations of yourself, as you're saying, is ultimately still you. All the different sides of you are ultimately still you. Um, I also wanted to, to jump back a little bit and uh, address some of what you were saying about the immigrant experience and the idea of trying to bridge that gap and trying to like live, you're trying to live mm -hmm. in a majority white environment and also live up to expectations that you have from your non-white family typically. And I was going to say that, that that strikes me, even though we don't always think of it that way, that strikes me as a profoundly American experience. Uh, when I when you look at, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen, well I assume you've probably seen, The Godfather Part 2. Uh, if you look at The Godfather Part 2, the very end of that, the, the Vito Corleone flashbacks, when he goes to his son and holds his little baby and he's he, you, he says, your father, he says in Italian, your father loves you very much, Michael, very much. And the way that he says it is like everything that I just did, I did for you and I have hopes for you. And a huge theme of that movie is the hopes that this this immigrant that the previous generation, this previous generation of immigrants has for their children to achieve in this new American dream land. Uh, and then the kids trying to live up to that and often failing to do so. And that's something that I've seen, obviously not not just in depictions of like this, uh, but also I have one of my closest friends, his family are Korean immigrants and they have, they very much have that sense of like, we have expe these expectations for you. I've seen that in African immigrant parents uh, where they'll be like, we have these very strong expectations for our children to be able to survive in this environment. Honestly, even with that yep. trying to bridge that gap, I see it even in a show like Three Black Halflings, where all of the hosts of Three Black Halflings uh, that we've had, I think, have often felt torn between a white world and a black one, even if there's not necessarily as much of a sense of immigration. Uh, there's like trying to fit into this world, but also feeling a strong connection to this world and trying to stride both. It's interesting because uh, Joy, her girlfriend is white and uh, all of the halflings, all of the people who've been official halflings on the show, three black halflings, of all of them, none of them have been dating a black person while they were on the show. Uh, and in fact, in most cases, Interesting. yeah, and I, of, of the ones that I'm a, a, aware of, I think three out of the four partners were white, uh, which is like, it's now all of these people are black, but it shows like one of the big themes of that show is trying to bridge that gap between one of the recurring themes. I think that yeah. all of the halflings had experienced is trying to bridge that gap between uh white Americanness and blackness. And so that, I also wanted to throw out, I don't know if y'all have seen Angels in America uh, by Tony Kushner, mm -hmm. but that also, in addition to queerness, also deals at the very beginning with issues of immigration and trying to bridge, and like the, the weight that the descendants of immigrants carry. Um, there's an opening monologue given by a rabbi at a funeral for one of the main characters, one of the main characters, I think, aunts or something or grandmothers I can't remember uh, but there's a line that I wanted to read which is 
uh, you do not grow up in America. You and your children and their children with the goyish names. You do not live in America. No such place exists. Your clay is the clay of some Litvak shtetl. Your heir the heir of the steppes. Because she carried the old world on her back across the ocean in a boat, and she put it down on Grand Concourse Avenue or in Flatbush, and she worked that earth into your bones, and you pass it to your children, this ancient, ancient culture and home. And I think that that... That aspect, like that gets to, I think, a lot of what we're talking about in terms of the difficulty of uh, the trouble that the next generation has with trying to uh, live up to the expectations and culture that they are descended yeah. from while finding themselves in a culture that expects them to fully assimilate. Uh, and so I think that this movie does a great job of, of, even though I think some people will look at that particular theme and be like, well, I can't identify with that. I think it's important to recognize that America as a nation of immigrants, this is, some, this is an element that is core to the American story in a lot of ways. Well, I also think, I mean, and, and this is an important point you bring up, Jeremy, is like when, when people look at something like this and say, well, I can't identify with that, I, my response to that is, well, then you're not trying hard enough. Because as the two of you were talking, uh, from a very kind of different, you know, not attached to race, but like growing up in a very conservative uh, Christian home and being given a lot of messages of you're not of this world, you're of another world, you won't, you know, you don't belong to this world, you belong to another world. There is a sense even there of, and it's, and it's more fabricated than it is like something that's, you know, comes with you as part of your, your racial identity. Um, but there is a sense there of, of creating a sense of other and creating a sense of high expectation and all this stuff. So it's it's a different type of relation. I'm not equating that experience with, with your two experiences, but what I am saying is that as you're talking, I'm finding my own little points where I'm going, oh yeah, that feels a lot like how I felt, you know, when I was, you know, 13 and, and whatnot. And so by having these conversations, these dialogues and starting to say, okay, how do you relate? How do you relate? How do you relate? I think that's where you start to go, hey, there's a lot in everything, everywhere, all at once that uh, <laughs> actually does apply very much to me uh, and to my experience uh, that maybe not may not be on the surface, just like on the surface, it, oh, two languages, oh, okay, how am I gonna navigate this movie? Like, surrender to it, <laughs> get, you know, get comfortable, let yourself be overtaken by the story and those things start to come out. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's also something to be said here about uh, an audience being media literate enough or like like even For like sure. media open-minded mm. enough, right? To be able to like yes. take in this movie and get the most out of it, right? Because I think there is something in this movie for a lot of people, right? Um, Jeremy, going back to what you said, so you touched upon a lot of things and I want to address as many of them mm. as I can. Um, just, I suppose, I suppose in order. So one of the first things you talked about is this, uh, the movie's approach to identity making, right? This idea that there is still a core part of you, there is still a, a ship of Theseus, no matter how many parts are replaced and swapped out. Um, and that, that's very trans to me. That is a mm. very trans way of thinking about identity, especially now where there's so much incredible transphobia, oh like flying around all over the goddamn place. And I'm just kind of trying to mind my own fucking business, honestly, over here, being like, ah, transplanter, come to you know, like I'm just doing my own <laughs> thing. Um, where all these different sides of you are still you. I think that's what you said. Yeah. And this idea of like being trans, like I chop my titties off, right? Like my boobs gone, right? But I'm still me. And there mm. are some trans people who 
you know, they do top surgery, they do bottom surgery, they do facial feminization surgery, all kinds of surgery. They take HRT. They may have dead names, right? They may have new names. They change their pronouns, right? And all of these different things that change that we destroy, like that we kill, these parts of ourselves that we kill, that we destroy, that we leave behind, and also parts of ourselves that we keep. Back before we knew we were trans or like when we were still in some ways like questioning our, our identity, right? Like my name, Connie, I don't have a dead name. Like this is the name that my mom gave me, right? And I feel comfortable with the name Connie. Um, but a lot of trans people obviously have dead names, and they, you know, and, and they take on new names and they might sure. even change their new name, you know, as, you know, like new pairs of boots as we outgrow them or as our feet change for whatever reason, right? And HRT, right? Like some trans people take hormones, some don't. Some trans people uh, go under vocal training, uh, some don't, right? And this idea that no matter what, like we are still yeah. us, like we're still us. And this idea sometimes, that something that breaks my heart sometimes is when trans people come out to their parents, especially young trans people, and the parents are like, well, I can't unsee you as the daughter I always had. You know, but it's like, n no, I'm still me, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I'm still me. I'm just asking you to respect this name, that th this real name of mine. And like, all I ask for you is to let go of your idea that this, that I was, am, will be a daughter, right? Just like, accept me, be here with me in this parking lot on my own terms. So it, mm. it hurts so much when parents are unable to do that because of bigotry, mm. um, right? Bigotry yeah. is honestly one of the biggest wedges <laughs> that I think can be driven between a parent and their child. And it's, it's deeply, deeply sad to me when, you know, kids go no contact with their parents and their parents are left being like, why won't my child talk to me anymore? And I'm like, well, it's a grave you dug yourself, right? You were <laughs> unable to see that this child was still your child, mm. right? Past the lens of your bigotry. Uh, so that's one. And Evelyn comes close to she, that. Yep. In the in the movie. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she does. like I, I feel like it. The, the movie flirts with that of like her and Joy are just, you know, there's a moment where you're like, oh, okay, that's where this story's going. They're not going to rectify. Uh, Joey's going to be lost and this is going to teach Evelyn some lesson and movie will end however it ends um, and whatnot. But no, and I think it's it, it's really interesting you talk about that with the trans experience because I think also the other, it, and, and I know nothing about the trans experience not being a trans person, but from what I'm hearing, it sounds like all those, you know, the gender affirming surgeries or the hormones, all this stuff, like those, like if you're not settled within yourself and know who you are at your own core, like those things can help, but they're not going to change who you are at your core. It, it, does that make sense? In the terms of like, you know, some people don't don't have those things and they can still feel a certain way or whatnot, but it does get to this whole like thing of who are we as, as human beings? Like, who are we when we're mm -hmm. rocks, <laughs> you know, on a, on a mountainside and that, and we have no way to communicate, but rock telepathy. Uh, I love the fact that the movie shows us so many weird versions of realities and things that are different with bodies, things that are different with, you know, being rocks and, and things like that, because it does kind of get back to the whole thing of like, this flesh is just that, it's just flesh. It's not, you know, whether you believe in a soul or not, it's not our soul, it's not our spirit, uh, you know, and, and it's it's not the thing that loves mm. or, or hates. It is It is the thing that carries out love and hate. Uh, and we need to look past that flesh into, you know, the soul, for lack of a better term, uh, mm. to find the true representation of who we are. Yeah, what you're saying is actually really resonating with me too, Andrew. I think there's something to be said also about um, our bodies, especially 
in a unfortunately modern context where other people's bodies are being regulated uh, by forces outside of their control, right? Both for women and for trans people, right? Um, and honestly, people of color too, when we think about in a carceral context, <laughs> right? Of imprisoning bodies, but that aside, um, yep. this idea of my body is mine, my identity is mine, I get to define what that is, and I get to do to my body and to myself what I want to do to it, I think is a is weirdly a radical stance, but it is kind of the stance that I have, which is why <laughs> this is kind of an aside. Uh, but the other day I saw on Twitter like this post of like a man who had undergone like pretty intense um, body body mods, right? He'd like split his tongue, he'd done a bunch of implants um, yep. in like a non-explicitly trans way, right? He had like tattooed his uh, the whites of his eyes to Does be the completely dude black. Look like a snake. Yes, and there's a like there's folks yeah. like that, you know, in the world, right? Like not just in the states, mm -hmm. but in the world who just do body mods to look more monstrous or to look like a cyborg or whatever, right? And there's a lot of comments being like, this is crazy, like this man, like this should be illegal, da 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 da. And honestly, my stance is, I think, and I, I've seen some critiques from other trans people too, being like, this is what cis people think of us, you know? So like, if we allow these people to do body mods, they're gonna take away our rights as trans people. <laughs> and I'm like, there is so much more liberty and solidarity to be found with people who undergo these body mods than, than there is to be assimilating into a cisgender definition of what appropriate body modification is. If you wanna, like, if you wanna chop your tongue off or split it or like, you know, remove your fingers to look like a lizard, go for it. Like, I don't give a fuck, like, go for it. <laughs> go for it, especially when like the radical acceptance of that as like some people's way of being happy, as some people's way of expressing themselves like, yeah, what is so, like, like, and as a trans person, what is so different necessarily about, like, a, a man splitting his tongue, right, to feel more like himself, and me, like, chopping my tits off necessarily, right? And, like, my approach to gender is, is that kind of radical acceptance of all kinds of identity and all kinds of expression, mm -hmm. right? As long as they're not hurting other people or bigoted, right? Like, let's make that clear. Uh, or, like, yeah actively trying to remove other people's rights. And I don't think someone undergoing body mod necessarily is doing that. But again, that was an aside. I'm gonna bring it back now. I'm gonna bring it back to the film. Uh, so <laughs> something that you said, Jeremy, is um, this idea of a struggle between like assimilation and like honoring the motherland, whatever that means, right? Whatever that looks like, whatever that, uh, however that works. Um, I think what's also so beautiful to me about the ending of this film is that Joy and Evelyn are kind of able to find a connection and uh, ostensibly a better life after that point, right? Um, not through a f capitalistic white supremacist validation. Like Joy doesn't get a job. Mm. She doesn't leave her partner. Yeah. Like she doesn't go, you know what? Let's sell the laundromat and become entrepreneurs and invest in Bitcoin or whatever, right? Like it's through <laughs> radical queer, honestly queer love for each other of acceptance of mother and daughter, right? Acceptance of the, frankly, the queer failure that Joy is in Evelyn's eyes, right? Accepting that queer failure as opposed to like, you know, Joy doesn't become less of a failure by the end of the movie. She doesn't. She doesn't. It's Evelyn whose perspective changes, right? That's what ends the movie, right? It's Evelyn who changes her idea. And Evelyn doesn't become 
Yeah, and everyone exactly. doesn't become less of a failure. The movie ends with them back exactly. in the IRS building, like trying to yes, figure out exactly. their taxes. Yes. Like it's a big 100%, circle. <laughs> right. The thing that changes is Evelyn's perspective, right? Like she changes her idea of what success yes. is and what it means. And it's not Joy who changes. Yeah. It's not them who sell their laundromat and they become like really rich or whatever. It's not them hopping to another reality where right. they're super successful. That's not how the movie ends, uh, right? Oh, I'm so glad that's not how they. How yes. It yeah. Yes. That would have. <laughs> that would have been so bad. Yeah, and obviously, like the you know the the writer slash writers and the directors, the Davids, like sorry, the Daniels, the Davids, <laughs> the Daniels, like they knew. <laughs> They knew that, right? Like, and they, you know, it felt very intentional yeah. to me. And this idea of, again, yes. something else you were touching upon, Jeremy. Uh, I think there's a difference between assimilating into whiteness and white supremacy and, and learning to live in America, whatever that means, right? And there's something to be said about the idea mm -hmm. of white supremacy being unable to be distangled from the idea of of the u.s right and the idea of the yeah, u.s empire be kind of at the core they're kind of it's a it core part <laughs> exactly it's a core part of being american it's in the constitution right? <laughs> yeah like kind of started when you know with no. genocide uh and continuing genocide uh but so so i i as a queer chinese person my own journey with that assimilation has kind of gone from, I want to assimilate. Oh my God, please, for the love of God, see me as American. I don't want to be bullied anymore. I don't want to feel horrible anymore. I just want to be normal. Right? This idea of like, just let me be normal to, you know what, fuck that. Uh, you know what? I don't want to be a part of this mm. like bullshit club. You know, I'm 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 rejecting the idea of assimilation in the first place, right? I want to be weird. I want to be monstrous. I find freedom and liberty and self-expression in being too big, too monstrous, too strange, too queer, too Chinese, right? For whatever Americanness exists, right? So like my journey from point A to that like point C uh, has been mm -hmm. difficult. Uh, and also the anchor for me through that entire experience has been queer love. Like from my friends, from, you know, uh, my partner now, C. Thomas, big shout out to C. Thomas, my drama jerk. Uh, and from like the community <laughs> and the found family that I have discovered and the new ways in which I have learned to negotiate my relationship with my mother and with my father and with my immediate family uh, that is safest for myself, bravest for myself and like, most authentic for myself in the way that I define authenticity. Mm. Yeah. I also wanted to touch on what you said it just like in regards to media literacy. Because uh, first of all, I agree with everything that you just said, and I actually do agree that yes, there is there's a there's a, before I get to the part about media literacy, there's a part uh, there's something about try like de sort of deciding to forge your own identity in America which I would also say is part of the American experience for a lot of people. Um, there's definitely, um, the song, The song. Uh, there's a line in the song, The Black or the Berry, uh, that reminds me of that, where uh, Kendrick Lamar uses, he says, I need to reread the whole context, but I'm pretty sure, I know he says the phrase, I'm a proud monkey. Uh, and the and like the, it, there's something very, uh, it's part of like a series of lines that are him embracing common negative stereotypes about black men and saying like, I'm incorporating this into my identity in a way that is like, fine, yeah, that's who I am. Who cares? Like, I don't give a crap what you have to say about me because you guys all hate me anyway. So I, I don't even care about like your your parameters for what I have to be. You're gonna call me a monkey? Great, I'm a proud monkey. That's like, that's how it comes across, at least in that part of the song. Um, but also the 
the media literacy, the, the one thing that we, we sort of uh, walked up to it, which is the the scene where he's like, in another, where uh, where Waymond is like, in another reality, I would have loved to just be doing taxes and laundry with you. Which is again, yeah, I completely agree, an incredible scene. But like the way that that the fact that that is taking place during like a very blatant homage to In the Mood for Love uh, is yeah. like. It's they and they never say it. It's just extremely clear. Like if you've seen a picture of the movie, it's like oh yeah, like it's the same. It's the same thing. Uh, yeah. And in that that whole movie is about like love that can, that I if I'm remembering correctly, love that can never really be realized, but is there and can yeah. never truly be fully expressed or acted upon. Uh, but it's like it's what they wish. And the idea like that. In, uh, as somebody who's seen the movie, I feel like that element of media literacy, what's interesting is that scene works for you even if you haven't seen In the Mood for Love. Because you, it's right. like, oh, this is a genuine thing. But when you watch it within the context of that, it's like, oh, yeah. There, this is like the, that character getting to say what he never got to say in that film. Where he's yeah. like, I would have loved to just have another life where I could have been with you and I didn't have all this other stuff and we could have just been together and I wish... That, that's what we could have had. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's such a powerful scene. Uh, I, I also wanted to ask, Connie, you mentioned specifically the phrase queer failure, which is uh, a phrase that I'm not really familiar with. Could you go like into a, could you go into a little bit more uh, depth and explain what you're talking about and how that relates to the film? Yes. Uh, so my, the, the first time I encounter this concept, uh, it's technically from, the, from a book called The Queer Art of Failure by Judith uh, Halberstam. And essentially, it's, a, it's an aspect of queer theory that talks about alternate ways of being and alternate understandings of success in a cis-heteronormative world, right? So in a cis-heteronormative world, success might look like getting married, having kids, you know, having a white picket fence, you know, and like having a stable job, right? And those kids having kids, right? And so many queer people are like not interested in that uh, or like that's not... That's just not a part of their understanding of themselves uh, and uh, a fulfilling way for them to be, right? Uh, so this idea of like embra embracing embracing that failure, right? Like it's 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 there's something liberating uh, in being like, you know what? That is a life. That is a mode of success that does not speak to me. That I will never have. Uh, that is honestly has never truly been offered to me uh, in any sort of viable way. And I am, I still have worth, and I can still have success on my own terms, right? Like define what success means to me uh, for myself. Uh, and there's something very when you stop trying to strive for legitimacy in the eyes of whiteness, of cisness, of empire, it is so liberating. You, it is freeing. It is so freeing. When you like stop putting energy into fighting for the right to be seen as quote unquote normal, then you get to like expand your horizons of what life could be. And like that was honestly like a light bulb switch moment for me in my understanding of social justice and also in my understanding of myself too. Like like I'd mentioned for a while, I was kind of fighting for a very liberal idea of um, justice, I think. This idea of like, oh, let's reform the prison system, right? Let's, you know, like, rehabilitate criminals instead of troubling my idea of what criminality was, right? Let's have better laws around property yeah. instead of troubling my idea around why do we have property laws in the first place? You know, like a sort of light switch of instead of like, let's find, let's give young queer people resources so they can achieve su success instead of being like, 
well, what does success mean in the first place? And why is it tied to survival necessarily, right? This idea of like, mm, yeah. obviously all of us need money to survive in capitalist society. Like, but by God, we should just dismantle capitalism to begin with, right? Instead of like having to always like cater and caper <laughs> for it. So that's kind of like a very base level 101 understanding, I think, of uh, queer failure. The book goes into a lot more detail about it. And it's also about like rejecting white supremacist, colonialist modes of of rightness, uh, success, and and trueness and truth too, I think. And especially now as like trans dis discourse, for lack of a better term, is becoming more and more mainstream and a lot of people are profiting off of this pain and profiting off of this discourse. Uh, I'm looking at a lot of conservative talk show hosts. Um, you know, I, I am increasingly, I think, frustrated by some queer and trans responses to it of being like, we just want to be accepted as, as normal. And whereas I'm like, no, no, that's not where my priority is in fighting this fight. Like, I don't want to be accepted necessarily mm. by like a cis heteronormative society. I want to be able to just live my life without fe fear of death on my own terms, right? Um, in in some sort of compromise or negotiation with the society where my end goal is to destroy it, <laughs> is to dis dismantle it from the ground up and replace it with something else. Well, and, and I think that that ties to Evelyn's, you know, kind of way that she interacts with Joy because at the beginning of the movie, there is a, you know, we talked about this already, there is a level of acceptance in terms of like, you know, she knows that she's got a girlfriend, but you know, we're not gonna talk about it much. We're gonna introduce you to, uh, you know, you can be around, you can be around, but we're gonna introduce you as the friend and like, okay, we're, we're tolerant. We're tolerant and accepting, but that's very different from, but do you love me for just who I am? And, and where she gets at the end of the movie where it's like, look, I, I choose you, I love you for you uh, and all your multiversal facets uh, and whatnot. And I think that that's, you know, in, in a small way, I feel like that, that kind of parallels what you're talking about of like, there's a there's a level of acceptance or tolerance that is, is kind of nice and white uh, and, you know, conservative and capitalistic that like, okay, but that's not love. <laughs> it's not, it's, it, it's, it's not true love, it's, that's why I've always hated the word tolerate. It's like, it does not, there's nothing in that word that makes me feel like there's actual mm. love happening. Connie, uh, what you just said is reminiscent uh, about, uh, it, it reminded me of um, the game Disco Elysium, uh, one of my favorite, favorite games. Uh, and specifically the part of the game where you can choose to become communist. Uh, if you've said enough things that align with communism, then your brain will come to you and be like, hey, so it seems like you are interested in becoming communist. And then there's a point at which you can be like, wait. But, and of course, Disco, I take this with a grain of salt if you haven't played the game. This is intentionally satirical and somewhat jokey. Uh, the creators of this game are themselves communists, but the, you, they're just like, wait, but what's this communism even about? And it's like, failure. It's about failure. And he's like, failure? He says, yes, abject failure. Total, irreversible defeat on all fronts. Absolutely vanquished, beaten, curb stomped, and pissed on until you came along. Uh, it just reminded, it was, it remind, it's interesting because <laughs> you're looking at it from more of a queer context, but it, it's reminiscent of like, look, this the society and the system that, that you are a part of looks at everything that you have tried or looks at you as a person as a failure mm -hmm. uh, of what you're trying to be. So why don't we 
get rid of that and build a world uh, mm-hmm. that does not have those parameters. Uh, that is a yeah. completely different system. But yeah, it reminded me. <laughs> and the, the last line, uh, the last part of it where it says, uh, you're like, what should I do? And they say, you should build communism precisely because it's impossible. Uh, <laughs> which obviously I don't necessarily mean that it's impossible in real life. But in the context of the game, uh, it's a very funny line. And it remind. I think some of the, the attitudes that it's playing on and referencing are similar to the attitudes that you raised. Um, mm. Oh man, are there any other things we wanted to touch on before wrapping this up? Gosh, a million, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm I'm curious just uh what is your favorite moment from the movie? Because there are so many, uh, and there's so many poignant moments that we've talked about. But which one, for whatever reason, doesn't even have to be poignant, it could just be something silly that just really makes you laugh. But like what's what's your favorite moment from the movie? I'm gonna sound like such a such a basic bitch. The rock scene. So upon my first viewing, uh, yes. so good. My first viewing, I was like, "Oh, this is really heartfelt. Oh my god, this is so meaningful." But I didn't start full body sobbing until the rock scene. I was like, "Oh god, oh okay, oh there's no sound." <gasps> and I like immediately began yeah. like absolutely just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. Um, there's just something so, I don't know. I guess I'm a sucker for when, when the form breaks. And like everything just goes silent and it's just it's just subtitles and and at the end when Evelyn like when we go back to the rock scene and Evelyn scoots scoots toward Joy, even though that's impossible for a rock to do, uh, mm-hmm. and they tumble down the ravine, it's just so like So I see my partner, who I've mentioned one other time, uh, by name. Uh they are they're a dance theorist. And we talk, we love to analyze films and media that we watch as soon as we watch it. Like, we're, cause it's, yeah, our critical, like, theory brains are bouncing back and forth like ping pong balls that never hit the table. Uh, and they have done a lot of uh, education and study into, into affect theory, which is, okay, I'm gonna do my very butchered version of explaining what it is. They can explain it much better than me. Uh, of this idea that objects whole, like, contain affect. Uh, it's different from animism, which is this idea that like objects have a soul. Uh, it's more so that like, um, you know, me picking up this cup uh, by nature changes kind of like the what the cup is, I suppose, and what it can yeah. do. And this idea of like, you know, stuffed animals that we love, that we carry with ourselves, right? Like, you know, contains some some kind of energy is is changed by our relationship to it. So this idea of yeah. these these rocks, they're just fucking rocks, right? Like. That scene, devoid of context, is just—it's just—it's just a picture of two goddamn rocks. But all the context added onto it, like, I'm—I'm I'm weeping over these boulders. So, like, yeah, yeah. I think I think that—that's my favorite scene. And I'm not doing a very great job explaining affect theory. There's gonna be a listener being like, "That's not what affect theory is." I have a much better way of explaining it. So please, <laughs> yes, you do. You're right. You're probably right, and you probably do <laughs> uh, because I'm butchering C's explanation of it. But. I don't know. There's something about objects, objects representing us that yeah. speak to me. But also you mentioned the the sound dropping out. And in, and in a movie that is so, to use the aviation term, balls to the wall, uh, there's it's all of a sudden you're left with your own thoughts in a large way as well. And like, there's a, like, a, there's an emotional release that happens in that moment. And it's kind of like, you know, there's a joke that a comedian does about like he left his headphones at home and he goes oh boy thoughts are not good I thought I was addicted to music turns out I just didn't want to be alone with myself (laughs) and uh, 
it's kind of, for me, it felt kind of similar as like all of a sudden, you know, uh, I have this moment to breathe and the weight of everything you've been watching comes crashing on you in that moment, mm -hmm. uh, like a wave. And yeah, I love that you called that out. I don't think it's basic at all. I think it's one of the most beautiful moments of filmmaking uh, and such a great choice to have a moment of quiet uh, in a very loud movie. I completely agree. I don't think that that's a basic choice at all. I think the basic choice would probably be the butt plug. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. That's such an incredible action that, that piece. So funny. <laughs> but I completely agree. I'm uh, totally on board. And uh, actually, jumping back to community, in the very first episode, Jeff Winger gives a speech about how humans can impart meaning to objects uh, and impart mm. uh, personality to objects. And he's like, the same way I can tell you this pencil has a name and the na pencil's name is Luke. And then I, if I snap it, he snaps it. And one of the characters is like, oh. It's like, yeah, you feel something now. Because, uh, like, you have imparted an identity to this piece, to this object. Or even with the googly eyes. The way that the googly eyes suddenly start to change things into faces that didn't have faces. Even in the rock scene, where uh, the rocks have googly eyes on them. It helped, yeah, yeah, that's, I think that there's something uh, deeply human about imparting meaning and personality to objects and how those affect people. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm right on board with you there. I think yeah, that's a fantastic that's scene. Awesome. And even yeah, and on a, I completely agree with you, Andrew. Uh, from a filmmaking perspective, the fact that it lets you breathe for a moment, you're just like wow. And it's like the characters are feeling that as well. It puts yeah. you in the same mindset as the characters in that moment, where you just get to like there's like it's more meditative, and it's like oh, we're getting away from the noise and the rush mm -hmm. of the rest of this film, and just like relaxing for a moment and really uh, contemplating. What we're, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with both of you. My one of my final thoughts. Speaking of like just the film from like a filmmaking perspective, there there's a moment where a title card comes in and it's like the end. It's like a false end, right? And like false credits yeah. start rolling, <laughs> and it's when Evelyn is like ah, and then she dies. Like she like flops over and dies, right? And I think that happens. My during... wife was so mad. <laughs> she was like, it can't end there. <laughs> I'm glad that the fake out. Like, Don't worry, her. it doesn't. <laughs> uh, uh, I think it happens right around the break into the third act or something like that, where like mm -hmm. typically in like a, you know, that's when a death happens, either a spiritual one or a literal one uh, for a lot of like, um, just in terms of like story structure theory. Uh, so it was also really fun to see the ways in which this movie adhered to kind of conventional like three act like storytelling structure, but also broke mm -hmm. so many of the rules of the form uh, and of the, the story structure as well. Like it, and it, you know, it was able to break those rules because I, I feel like the filmmakers have such an intimate understanding of what the rules were. Uh, and they were able to twist yeah. and mold them both in terms of like pulling the rug out from underneath the audience's feet, because we also, you know, innately understand, you know, what a, a American movie might look like and sound like and feel like. And then like for that, expectation mm -hmm. to be disrupted in such a joyful and unexpected way um, added, enhanced my my understanding and, and uh, love of the film. For sure. Well, the radiation in the spoiler chamber is starting to disperse, which means that it is time for us to wrap up and uh, head about the rest of our business here upon the reactor. Uh, but Connie from PR, uh, mm. we really do want to thank you for beaming in today, providing yes. uh, so many great insights, so much good conversation. Um, Absolutely, I hope this provided the two of you with some solace in your final moments yes. before the event horizon hits. Yes, uh, in fact, uh, much like a rock staring out at a valley, 
Uh, I feel a peace. I feel a peace deep within my soul. Uh, the only thing that's niggling is, Connie, we should have you look inside of the flux quark capacitor to see sure. how many quarks you will uh, award this film. All right, let me just uh, unscrew the the handle here. Well, you're a hologram, uh, so yes, I'll yeah. do that you. for you. Yes. And uh, <laughs> give you the, let you look through the viewing portal. I'm wondering what you were unscrewing on your <laughs> side <laughs> to have made that noise. <laughs> All of a sudden, the air just goes out, and yeah, Connie yeah, dies. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm dead. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, let me peer inside here. Wow, I I don't even know if this is possible. Please correct me. I, I'm not a, a ship engineer or anything like that, but I, I'm seeing an infinite, a truly infinite number of quirks here, uncountable. Uh, it's been known mm -hmm. to happen. Yeah. Uh, is that and that's how? Yeah, we were we were awarding the movie Infinity Quarks. Yes, that's, I'm on board with this. I am. <laughs> I think that makes <laughs> I'm sense. I'm fully on board with this. Well, thank you all very much for listening <laughs> to this episode of the Quantum Reactor. Uh, you can find uh, us on Twitter and uh, other social media channels at Q Reactor Show. Uh, you can find me at Drew underscore Coons on Twitter. And Jeremy can be found at... At Jeremy Cobb one on Twitter and Hive. And at The Cobbmeister on Instagram. Uh, and Connie, PR rep for Quantum Core, where can folks find you except on the Quantum Core website? Well, yes, of course. Uh, first of all, I'm flabbergasted. I must have missed this. You're, you're revealing your Instagram now for, for everyone to hear? Yes. Yes, it. I hit. I said I would. I said I would reveal it when I hit 150 followers without ever having said the name on air or posted anything. Uh, and I hit that. I think a month or two ago. And actually, you should check it out. I posted a bunch of stuff. Uh, <laughs> oh. should, there's a really cool. There's. Some, I posted a bunch of reels. They're really cool. Oh my you god. Check them out. Yeah, I absolutely will. Oh my god. Yay! Jeremy's Instagram is now out in the wild. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yes. Hello, everyone. I'm Connie Chong. They he she from PR from Quantum Core. Uh, aside from the Quantum Core website, you can find me across the internet, namely TikTok and Twitter at by Connie Chong. That's B-Y-C-O-N-N-I-E-C-H-A-N-G. I am probably best known as the game master and creative producer for Transplaner RPG, which is an all-transgender POC-led TTRPG dark fantasy show uh, set in an original non-colonial anti-orientalist multiverse? Multiverse. <laughs> uh, we are, we've just wrapped up campaign one, so if you like binging really queer, really trans, uh, character first, you narratively focused dark fantasy stories about queer love and an annihilation literally annihilation uh in the you know queer love in the face of apocalypse uh you'll love transplanter rpg the second stranger which is our first main campaign which is on podcasts uh all past vods are on our youtube and we stream saturdays typically when we're back from hiatus which will be in june 2023 at 8 p.m u.s eastern time uh and i think that's all the plugs i have for today thank you both so much for inviting me aboard your ship uh albeit in holographic form thank you so much for joining us uh in your holographic form we hope to have you again sometime because this has been yes. a truly wonderful time uh truly wonderful discussion thank you so much truly yes uh and with that dear listeners uh we will see you next time on the event horizon